0: mentioned before oh like do you see parts of yourself in this character and then keanu reeves is like yeah maybe a little bit too much and i'm like stupidly meta (laughs) but yeah i don't know i just thought that was funny and like um you know this being our first podcast episode we really wanted to go hard and try to pick apart the most meta complicated movie we possibly could just give ourselves like the hardest task
1: (laughs) want to do the actual intro now yeah let's do it all right welcome everyone (laughs) to our as yet unnamed movie review podcast where we are discussing a film that came out over a month ago and has already been removed from most streaming services, meaning that a lot of the potential audience that might listen to this probably won't be able to watch it without pirating it or something like that. But we're going to talk about the matrix resurrections anyways so starting off with i am amos chen i do a lot of things um most of them not very well and <laughs> my co-host would you like to introduce yourself
0: of course um i'm sierra Wu. I'm co-hosting this podcast, Yet to be Named, with Amos, where we will be uh, having some hot takes on some controversial movies, and by controversial, I mean movies that people either love or hate.
1: All right, and yeah, what better to start with than The Matrix Resurrection? Yeah, so... I guess we can start with a brief plot recap, but um before doing that, how many so how many times have you seen this movie <laughs> so far, Sierra?
0: Um <laughs> I hate to say I've seen it five times.
1: <laughs> five times? Yes. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. <laughs> honestly.
0: Yeah, so if there's anyone who's um, qualified to be speaking on this movie, you got the right person on the podcast.
1: <laughs> that's, that was the idea. <laughs> that was the idea, man. That's why, that's a large reason of why I wanted to do this for our inaugural episode. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and... Uh, I have only seen this movie twice. Want to go over the quick plot details?
0: Um, Yeah, sure. So, The Matrix 4 opens with Thomas Anderson being a video game designer who designed a video game called The Matrix, which is the plot of the video game was basically the first three Matrix movies. And his company wants to make a reboot, um, Matrix 4, and he's been put in charge of making it. Uh, if, if he doesn't do it, you know, they'll find someone else to do it, which is, I think, Lana Wachowski is saying something. I think a lot of people just picked up on that. Uh, Warner Brothers is going to make this movie, whether or not she liked it. So she's decided, you know what, I'll just do it. At least I'll have creative control in some sort of way. But yeah, so Thomas Anderson is this video game designer. Um, he is in love with this married woman named Tiffany, who's Trinity from his video games slash the first three Matrix movies. And through his relationship with Trinity and, um, you know, rediscovering that he he is Neo, which we will dissect a little bit. Um, We don't believe that he is. And through the movie, neither does he really. Um, He is able to escape the Matrix again. So, some of the different things or some of the details that were different between this movie and the first three were that uh, besides him, you know, being a video game designer and sort of being gaslit into believing that his Previous memories as Neo are actually just parts of his game making its their way into his subconscious or parts of his personality being, you know, fused with his art, sort of losing touch with reality because he's put so much of himself into his art. Um, as well as the fact that he, uh, in this movie, struggles with what his psychiatrist has um diagnosed him with as i think clinical depression and hallucinations so um,
1: bas- yeah basically some sort of non-specified psychotic disorder mm-hmm.
0: which causes him to believe that he is Neo or that elements from the matrix are applicable to his real life, such as, you know, being able to reach through mirrors or people coming up to him and telling him that he needs to escape, things like that. Um, Do you want to pick up on what happens after?
1: Pretty much almost the first hour of the movie is just a giant mass of self-referential commentary about the franchise and modern movie making in general, it feels like, Um, especially the scenes where Neo is in literally endless corporate meetings trying to develop the new Matrix movie, which a lot of commentators have said is very likely based off of real pitch meetings that the Wachowskis have probably previously been in and of course, there's also the hilarious line by New Agent Smith where he says that our parent company, Warner Brothers, has insisted that we produce a sequel to The Matrix, which, yeah, that's that's just completely smashing the fourth wall at that point. Mm-hmm.
0: So anyway, Act 2 starts when Morpheus, who... um was trapped in this modal, escapes with the help of Bugs and comes through a mirror reminiscent of the first Matrix movie and tells Thomas Anderson that he is indeed in the Matrix still, to which he responds um, thinking that, oh, this is crazy, you know, like I'm having a psychotic break right now. Which is supported by the fact that um, in this narrative he had survived a suicide attempt and was on medications, and so there is that element of doubt, um, at least from his perspective, on whether or not any of this is real—not from, you know, even a simulation standpoint, but just from like a psychiatric standpoint, which is like an interesting, an interesting spin on the whole. You know what's real. Thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and yeah. Um, also just wanted to add that um, there that in this in this adaptation of the Matrix, Mor- Morpheus is actually played by Yaya Abdul Mateen rather than Lawrence Fishburne in. The original movie, because this Morpheus is actually a digital program that's made to assume the role of Morpheus from the original movie, which is to find Neo, literally what he says when he's freed from the Modell by Bugs. And also there is some fantastic line reading from Yaya abdul in his first scene, like, at last. <laughs> Morpheus Uno at the window, thunder mm-hmm. and lightning. Didn't know about the callback, but hey, you never know. <laughs> so once again, completely referencing that referencing the fact that this movie is a not-really-reboot-but-also-kind-of-reboot of the original film, also even saying tragedy or farce, who can tell, referencing that quote about history repeating itself first as tragedy, then as farce. So Morpheus tries to get Neo to go through the mirror with him. He thinks he has a psychotic break. He ends up getting into a gunfight with a SWAT team that's been sent to his company and the new new Agent Smith in this version of the in this version of the Matrix, who's a business agent rather than an FBI agent and played by Jonathan Groff. Because once again, Hugo Weaving's production schedule did not align with what Lana Wachowski wanted to do. And he seemingly shot fatally by Smith in the ensuing gunfight, but then wakes up in the analyst's office and did you want to talk more about The Analyst? Oh my gosh, yes. This I really like the addition. I think this the addition of this
0: character is something that made the movie really special because it takes the idea of, you know, like the Matrix, the first three Matrix movies were sort of, you know, breaking free, Of, like, the logical possibility of, you know, there's like a logical reality that you need to break from, but this is more of like an emotional reality. And so, by having the analyst be Thomas Anderson's psychiatrist, it sets that up um, very early on that this movie isn't about, you know, breaking free of the logical constraints of the given world, but breaking free from, you know, the emotional reality that Thomas Anderson takes for granted, especially when it comes later on to his feelings for Trinity and the emotional reality that the Matrix presents him with versus the emotional reality that he feels is his true reality.
1: Yeah, and what do you think A example of a difference between the logical focus of the first three films versus the emotional focus of this one is?
0: So, um, in the first movie in particular, which is when Neo breaks free from the Matrix, um, this all happened, you know, like around Y2K, um, you know, people taking the systems that be for granted um as sort of like an examination of the logic that exists behind the power structures which guide our lives such as you know um the architect sort of being like a god figure you know the architect of uh you know modern society um versus in the matrix 4 the analyst is more interested in not work not building an external world according to um you know maximizing output uh things like that it's more of manipulating people's internal emotional worlds to maximize output
1: yeah 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 and um, we are completely going off the rails again here, but isn't there? Doesn't the analyst literally say something at the end to the effect of how the architect failed because he cared too much about facts and logic, and he and he succeeds because essentially feelings don't care about your facts.
0: Exactly, he's like a, he's like a evil Ben Shapiro, <laughs> like, feelings don't care about <laughs> Evil Ben Shapiro be like. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's kind of like the whole, um, I think the twist that makes this movie interesting is sort of, I guess, moving the locus of control from systemic control to emotional control. So, like, instead of, like I said, um trying to manipulate people's external circumstances, you can manipulate their internal circumstances and get, you know, an even more powerful grip on their reality and a stronger ability to control their reality.
1: Once again, jumping randomly around the plot as we please, there's a scene where the analyst literally taps Neo on the head and says the only world that matters is the one up in here and up in and up in here is all about fiction and what validates fiction what makes them real feelings so yeah Definitely mm-hmm. can see the focus on feelings here and emotions. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about anti psychiatry stuff? <gasps> yes. <laughs> All right. Do you do you feel bold enough to kick it off? Or
0: uh-huh. <laughs> do you want me
1: to vamp a bit first? Would you like to,
0: because I feel like you definitely have more to say on the subject. I can maybe add some points, but...
1: <laughs> Something that a bit less obvious that I noticed, and I am not certain at all if this was intentional, nor did I do any research on this because I am a hack and a fraud, but... <laughs> I feel there's a. I feel there's like a slight commentary here about essentially the commodification of therapy and behavioral health as a facet of the larger transformation of personal wellness into a consumer product. Um, Mostly, I'm just thinking of the scene where Neo is having coffee with um, Trinity or Tiffany as she's going by in that scene where he says that, uh, where he says, I pay my psychoanalyst a lot of money to figure out my emotions, basically. So there's a direct link between emotional wellness and consumerism right there and um, and then at the same time you can go back to the you can go back to the entire structural critique of um, psychiatry and um, modern therapy in general really which is, how it places the level of analysis upon the individual instead of the system. Um, I mean, obviously the system in this movie is the uh, literal virtual reality matrix that Neo and his cohorts are plugged into that they're unaware of. But even within that world, you could make that particular argument because Um, For example, Neo is extremely stressed throughout most of the first act of the movie because he's under time crunch to develop a sequel to his Matrix trilogy of video games. So, yeah, he's...
0: Yeah, that's like a direct link of like productivity um, affecting, you know someone's emotional and mental well-being, and that being, in return, commodified in order to maximize his productivity and make sure that he's on track to
1: do what Warner Brothers tells him to. Yeah, exactly. Um, But anyways... Um, oh, yeah, I forgot to say this earlier, but as another aside, the scene where... The second scene where Neo meets Trinity slash Tiffany and they have a conversation over coffee, talking about what, talking about the Matrix video games and whether or not the characters based on her. Um, that scene actually occurs at the thirty around the thirty minute mark of the film, which um, in conventional screenwriting is meant to be the transition between the transition between act 1 and act 2 and like signifying that the signifying that the characters cross the point of no return essentially um, yeah just wanted to what? because
0: I didn't I didn't even realize that at first um. Until, until you just mentioned it now. like I had thought that maybe the point of no return was much earlier in the movie, but it does make sense because um, Trinity is sort of the linchpin of this entire film.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. like one of the big criticisms of the film is that it's is that the story and pacing are kind of weird. but if you view the film as strictly, about the love story between Neo and Trinity it's a very it's a very conventionally structured and written film like if you only look at that aspect like if you view it as like a sci-fi action film it's kind of a mess plot and writing wise but like if you only look at the Trinity Neo love story like it is a very it is a very conventionally structured and easy to follow film
0: yeah, and so that kind of makes me think that that's perhaps the original intent, or like the, the you know the big picture of what this movie's going for, which is what we, as you'll see like later on when we talk about the conclusion of this movie, you'll see that Miss and I both agree that this movie is a love story, and it's not really about, you know, action as as much as the uh, first three movies were.
1: That's literally why. The movie was made um like like lana wachowski literally said that she that the only reason she made the movie was because um depicting the love story between neo and trinity helped her to process her parents death essentially yeah like there's a interview with Entertainment Weekly, um, where she talked about how Warner Bros had constantly been asking her to make a sequel to the original trilogy, and she'd always declined because she thought that the overall story was already finished, but then after her parents' death, she decided to go back to it because, quote, Um, I couldn't have my mom and dad, yet suddenly I had Neo and Trinity, arguably the two most important characters in my life. It was immediately comforting to have these two characters alive again, and it's super simple. You can look at it and say, okay, these two people die, and okay, bring these two people back to life, and oh, doesn't that feel good? Yeah, it did. It's simple. And this is what art does, and this is what stories do. They comfort us, and they're important. So... Yeah, the Matrix Resurrections, in the end, it was all about love.
0: It's like, I think a big theme of this movie is sort of reducing love to a feeling or a hope or a fear isn't, that's not, you can't uh, fully understand love as that. Love is also, you know, action. It's also choice. It's also, you know, exercising your free will against you know, logic, or against fear, which will become apparent in the end. But um, I think his mistake in this movie and what Lana Wachowski wants to point out is that love isn't just, you know, some sort of chemical reaction in your brain or it's not something that uh, arises from childhood trauma and that you're trying to, you know, remedy through your adult relationships.
1: So... Great. Wanna get back to talking about what actually happens in the movie?
0: Yes. So where did we leave off?
1: <laughs> um Neo was in the analyst's office.
0: Oh yes.
1: Alright. So after being so after a session with the analyst that only further causes Neo to doubt his reality. Um, uh, He next runs into Bugs, the character who was the audience stand-in from the beginning, who basically drags Neo literally um, through a portal to exit the Matrix. And he wakes up in a he wakes up in a pod um just like in the original movie surrounded by tubes in a vast machine of other people in pods and he and he's taken out and brought to the human colony of Io where he meets the, where he meets Niobe, the character from the previous trilogy who informs him that it's been 60 years since the events of the original trilogy and no one had known what had happened to Neo and Trinity to the point of which um to the point of which that they basically completely become myths inside the universe just like how the matrix trilogy is can kind of be seen as sort of modern day mythology in our universe um that might be too much of a Reach analysis wise. I don't think
0: so. I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty spot on.
1: <laughs> but yeah, and yeah. So this brings me to another point that I wanted to make, which is that there's a just. Looking at the Matrix Resurrections and the original Matrix side side by side, there's a lot of plot similarities and parallels between the two. Because the um because from like a real world level, this is meant to be a reboot that's not really a reboot, um but is meant to kind of be a reboot because warner brothers wants themselves some more content and a new franchise that they can make money off of um but in universe the events run extremely similarly to the original matrix film because the events of the original matrix trilogy are known to the characters in the Matrix Resurrections and a lot of the characters in the Matrix Resurrections, such as Bugs, are intentionally trying to recreate the events of the original film because they basically want to speed run Neo's character development so that they can have um, essentially cyberpunk superman to take down (laughs) the machines once and for all um i mean there's they make comments about this um all throughout the first two thirds of the film um there's when program morpheus is rescued by bugs out of the Um, Modal that Neo had unintentionally created. The first thing he says is, I am Morpheus and my job is to find Neo. So in this sense, he's not just a digital recreation of the character played by Laurence Fishburne. He's literally meant to embody the role of Morpheus in the original trilogy which was to find and train Neo and um this was and this was pretty intentional I feel from the beginning because um as I've referenced Ad Nausea the reason Agent Smith wasn't played by Hugo Weaving in this film was because of scheduling conflicts but the recast of Morpheus was one of the first uh, announcements that was made d- during casting. And Lawrence Fishburne even said in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter that it was a conscious choice made by the Wachowskis to recast him. So Morpheus as a digital recreation was a very intentional creative choice. Um, Aside from that, there's the scene in there's the scene after Neo gets out of the Matrix where he's brought into a where he's brought into um a simulated dojo similar to the first Matrix film where he fights um, Morpheus in a martial arts fight. In that scene, Morpheus literally says I know what you need to get back to your old self. So once again, referencing that they're trying to recreate the events from the old films in order to basically get Neo's mojo back, which is a quote that's repeatedly said by multiple characters throughout the film um and yeah and then there's and oh yeah we didn't even talk about this earlier but right before Neo's taken out of the matrix they bring him into a room where they literally project scenes from the original Matrix film onto the walls of the room. And Bugs says that, and Bugs literally says, we thought that bringing in elements from your past would help you better transition to which, morpheus follows by saying nothing like a bit of nostalgia am i right so (laughs) yeah this so yeah this movie is um this movie is quite something else like there's this is one of the elements that makes me doubt whether or not this the Matrix Resurrections is actually a movie or not? <laughs> it's um, just
0: like a really good fix-it fanfic, T B H. Yeah, that is what it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's what
0: it feels like.
1: <laughs> yeah, it 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 definitely feels that way. That is a amazing way to describe it
0: yeah except the only difference is like this is like a can it's like canon you know like the the actual creator decided to do a fix it
1: yeah so neo's in io and he finds out that after he after he basically saved the world in the Matrix revolutions, there was temporary peace between the machines and the humans um, to the point where there's even there's even um, sentient robots in IO who help out the humans and are part of their society because another one of the things that the Matrix Resurrections is trying to establish is that the, um, the conflict here isn't necessarily between that of nature and artificial or organic versus machine, but rather that of individual freedom versus centralized power and control. Um, and we realized that Bugs is not very happy at the current setup of Io because she feels that in the interest of preventing conflict with the machines, Niobe isn't working hard enough to free people from the Matrix. So Bugs and Neo team up to infiltrate and go back into the Matrix. Um, Bugs because she wants to destroy the machines, Neo because he wants to save Trinity and so they discreetly enter the Matrix, where they are confronted by Agent Smith, who now remembers that he is actually Agent Smith, and he's brought friends with him in the form of a bunch of previous side villains from the original Matrix trilogy, including Hobo Merovingian, who's a old man yelling at the cloud, basically
0: <laughs> pretty much that's a good,
1: pretty good summary of his character <laughs> we we used to have conversations not these, these, these tap <laughs> and um oh yeah, did you appreciate his did you appreciate him saying that? We, we will meet again in our franchise sequel spin-off.
0: Is, wait, our what? Um,
1: After the after the fight's done, he yells, "We our story is not yet over. We will meet again in our own franchise sequel spin-off.
0: Uh, <laughs> I didn't even realize
1: that's what he said. I thought he was just like being crazy. <laughs> I didn't, it was both. <laughs> I just Also, like off my his
0: entire dialogue, because I was like, oh, he's just, he's just a crazy guy.
1: <laughs> it's both. I feel like, also, like my French accent is horrible.
0: <laughs> it's okay. His was, his was completely like almost incomprehensible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that was the point, honestly. <laughs> like, I think it's, I think like it's the film making fun of like, um, boomers basically. Yeah. <laughs> Or like the people who are like things were things were better back in the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also jumping ahead to. This is also like jumping ahead, but I feel like that's one of the themes that. The, films trying to make to about um. About the past and how we relate to the past. Like we can't go back to a world before the matrix or before machines. We just need to learn to live with it and create um, the best world possible that we can inside it. Um, like, Like how the residents of I.O. Um, use technology from the Matrix to create uh, artificial food for instance um, yeah
0: and like how I think they even specifically said at one point it's because of the what is it syn- synthetics, which are the you know um, artificial intelligence from the Matrix that have uh, gained their free will and are living in Io. it's because of them that they are able to make advancements that they previously hadn't been able to do with just humans.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and there's even the line from Niobe where she says that Zion was stuck in a matrix of its own because of yeah. its complete rejection of any form of advanced technology, essentially, Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So
0: that I think like a very good message to include in a Matrix um, sequel. Just because I think as a society we've reached a point of no return. You know, we can't really break free from any sort of technological matrix. So we have to realize that you know we progress this in this direction for a reason. And we have to make the best of our situation.
1: Yeah, and I mean that's that's why I think it's fundamentally a post postmodernist film because it's acknowledging that it's acknowledging that we live in a world where material reality doesn't really matter anymore completely replaced everything with signs and symbols that are themselves based on signs and symbols to the point where we can't ever return to the before times and even of our even our ideas of what the before times are themselves are informed by the narratives and signs that we've constructed but Knowing this, we can still do things to make people's lives better um, because of the tools that we have. Um, Yeah, like what something I wrote in my notes is um, modernist take. Scientific advancement is good. We need technology to make people's lives better. Postmodernists take the industrial revolution and its consequences <laughs> have been a disaster for the human race. Postmodernist take, we can't return to a pre-industrial or globalized world, but we can still do things to make people's lives better.
0: Nice. <laughs> Retweet, man. That's great.
1: <laughs> Going back to a quote from the analyst where he talks about how the only thing that's valid anymore is fiction and the common narratives that we de- determine, which themselves mm-hmm. are based on what our feelings are. Um, I like that's a that's basically like a post-material way to view the world. Um like there's a um famous quote from a anonymous Bush administration official who basically said something to the effect of you know the main difference between between you liberals and us is that you guys live in what you, what you would call the reality-based community, which is people who believe that solutions emerge from your study of discernible reality, but that's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, we'll act again, creating other realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history staffers, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. That feels hard hard as fuck. (laughs) Yeah, and like that's the. That's just like. Sus, like a postmodern way to view the world where it's like. It doesn't really matter what's real. The only thing that matters is what you think is real and getting enough people to believe that that's real I feel like such a cliche right now but like with the like with the 2016 election like it like the whole scandal around Hillary Clinton's emails like like for people who were against Clinton like it didn't really matter what was in the emails or like If the emails were even bad or not, like the only thing that mattered was that there was a narrative that Clinton was a corrupt actor and anything that supports that narrative, whether it is quote unquote real or not, is real to them um, because it, because it validates the narrative that they've chosen to believe. Um, if my completely unhinged rambling just made any sense, I don't know.
0: it does. It does, and it goes back to the whole, you know, what this Matrix movie touched on with, you know, our emotional reality is more, more of a determinant of our base reality than. I guess, the external, um, you know, hierarchies of power.
1: Yeah, like a a bureaucratic hierarchy of power. Yeah, we've talked about the analyst so much that we should probably just talk straight up talk about this scene where we actually get to see what he's all about, since we're at about that time in the plot anyways. Mm So, um, Neo runs into Trinity in her garage where she's working on her motorcycle and they talk, but right as they're about to start talking, time freezes and the analyst appears and he reveals that he'd secretly been the one controlling the matrix all along and he can also control time too because he can because he has bullet time powers which he literally says our goal is one word bullet time and the analyst reveals that he, that he's the one who resurrected Neo and Trinity after the events of the Matrix revolutions, and that he realized that whenever neo and trinity get together they destabilize the matrix to the point that it collapses but as long as he keeps them separate but close their desire for each other generates a immense amount of energy that's enough to power the entirety of the Matrix, um, saying even at one point, the worse we treat you, the more we manipulate you, the more energy you produce. Ever since I took over, I've been setting productivity records every year. So, Neil Patrick Harris, ladies and gentlemen, professional gaslighter.
0: <laughs> Wait, why is that actually his whole career?
1: The more Mm -hmm. I gaslight, the more productivity I create. Neil Patrick Harris.
0: (laughs) Bro, no! (laughs) That's so funny. Well, I don't get why. He didn't just let Trinity die and then restart the whole Matrix again.
1: Oh, um...
0: Maybe it was just, like, his hubris and he wants to, like, prove a point just, like, for his own
1: amusement, but... I think that is why, honestly, um, like, in the scene later when Neo meets Sati, I think that's basically what she says, that, like, the smart thing to do would have been to just... Um, just cut his losses, kill Tr- Trinity, and start over. But um, the analyst is too proud of his system, and he thinks that Neo will return, and uh. um, everything will be back to the way that he had set set it up.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, because that that is kind of his downfall at the end, I think. With Yeah, okay, okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's completely it's completely his own hubris. The analyst is so convinced that either Neo will return out of his own desire for Trinity, or that Trinity will stay inside the Matrix because of her kids and her husband Chad. God um, <laughs> Still can't get over that they named him Chad.
0: (laughs) It's so ridiculous.
1: But yeah, like he's so incapable of like comprehending an alternative that like he basically panics and like tries to shoot them when Trinity decides to decides that she actually is Trinity rather than Tiffany and that they need to, and that, um, they are in the Matrix.
0: After that, I'm sorry, I'm, like, having a really hard time remembering what happens after that.
1: (laughs) There's, um, to be completely honest, like, a very, like, large, like, very large portions of the story in this movie doesn't, Like don't matter that much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel like this movie did maybe try to do a little bit too much, but
1: because it's like fundamentally just structured around like the neo-trinity love story. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean like I know why they didn't do do it, but like I feel it would have been a lot lot more interesting if the matrix resurrections had been like a limited streaming series instead oh, of yeah. like a two and a half hour movie because um because then they could have like because then they could have like fleshed out a lot more of like the world building and sci fi elements because a lot of the yeah, like a lot of the sci-fi elements don't make a lot of sense, or they're just hand waved essentially. Like uh, yeah, yeah. Like, and it would have the-
0: been cool to see, you know, like the syn I think that was a very interesting element of the movie that I wish could be expanded upon, but, you know, this movie was trying to do so much, like, I understand why they didn't really focus on that. Plus it is, you know, ultimately the love story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's basically, like, it's basically Lana Wachowski hijacking the um, Warner, Warner Brothers franchise IP machine to, like, create like her um her personal fanfic basically like you said like yeah it's it's um like lana wachowski like wanted to wanted to just make like a big old love story and in order to get it made she tacked on the she tacked on all the fancy sci-fi Matrix stuff. Hell yeah. <laughs> Knowing more about, like, just like the world of the Matrix Resurrections would be pretty interesting. Like, um, like the different programs talk a lot about the the suits who presumably are, like, the master AI people. So, yeah. like, knowing more about, like, how the power structures work in this universe, like, they imply there's different factions among the machines, which is kind of interesting. Like, everything about the Synthians and their relationship with the humans, etc. But Yeah, Synthians are
0: super interesting to me. And I think a lot of people were like really interested like, oh, huh, we should, they should have made the movie about that, but that's because people were looking for an action movie. Yeah. We don't want love stories anymore. But I do. I want love stories. <laughs> this movie was made for me and me alone.
1: <laughs> I mean, considering how much of a box office bomb it is, like, there's <laughs> a validity to that.
0: No, I'm, like, one of the only people I know who, like, actually thought there was, like, redeemable qualities of this movie.
1: (laughs) Hey, I really liked it, too.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, you're, like, the only other, like, crazy person I know. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God.
1: The true true decider of um, being an anomaly in The Matrix is whether or not you like The Matrix Resurrections.
0: Wait, actually... (laughs) Oh my gosh. We would make it in The Matrix. Or we would make it out of The Matrix.
1: Uh, Yeah, but... Anyways, I mean, like... A very large part, a very large part of this film is like critiquing like the whole um, modern movie system of like focusing on franchises and like um, and like IPs and like just spinning off and like acquiring like different intellectual properties and just like spinning off endless. Series and movies and etc. off of them, so yeah. I get why they. I get why they. Didn't do anything else besides make this movie, and
0: yeah.
1: Also, um. And also goes to my conspiracy theory that um. That Lana Wachowski, maybe. Might have intentionally made it to commercially bomb to make sure that Warner Bros. just doesn't make any more Matrix films.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I agree with that because that would be hilarious, first of all, and also I respect her so much more if that was like intentional. Like I couldn't respect her anymore, but you know.
1: Yeah, like, it's, that's another reason why, like, this film is, like, so, like, meta and self-referential that, like, I don't really know, like, it's hard to, like, analyze as a film, like, um, like, I mean, like, the love story between Neo and Trinity is, like, conventional enough and, like, makes sense, and it's, and, like, once you like have more knowledge of like the um background of the film and like why Lana Wachowski made it like it makes a lot more sense but like everything outside of that feels like um feels like artistic terrorism honestly (laughs) Take for the whole podcast The Matrix 4 was a work of artistic terrorism. (laughs) The Matrix 4 is not a movie, it's a post -post postmodern work of artistic terrorism. That is my that will that will be my letterbox review for this.
0: Yes, I love that. (laughs) Oh my god. Post postmodern artistic terrorism.
1: What a what a pitch. <laughs> yeah, because it's like Yeah, because it's like forcing um this piece of art like onto the audience or the studio or yeah, I mean it's um like it's intentionally sab- Sabotaging like the Warner Bros. Blockbuster machine, or yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the very out there unhinged take. <laughs> no,
0: I think it's I think it's a hundred percent like on point though. Like if if you can come up with the Matrix, you can come up with something like that. You know, like I, I don't think it's a reach.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean like. You, you also, like, watching the film, you also very much can, co- you very much come away with the impression that, like, this, um... All right, I'm going to make another very extended, lawn analogy, if that's all mm-hmm. right.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: So, around mm-hmm. when this film first came out, a lot of reviews I saw um, compared it to The Last Jedi because they're both polarizing sequels in popular franchises that are perceived to subvert a lot of the expectations and tropes associated with the franchises. But the difference, like a big fundamental difference between the two is if you watched like at least when I saw the Last Jedi, like I came away with the impression that um, the filmmakers were very much trying to leave it. They were very much trying to expand the fictional universe and create space for um, more. For more works um, following the story, like it's basically like it's a like it's basically made to with the intention of there being more films picking up on the story afterwards. Whereas with the Matrix Resurrections, I came away with the feeling that a very large intention behind it. Was to make it so that there can be no other films after this. If that oh. makes sense.
0: Yeah, rejecting those productivity standards again.
1: Yeah, like it's 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 artistic terrorism. Like I love Lana Wachowski just this Lana Wachowski just um putting in her fix-it-fix and then and then blowing up the franchise behind her
0: oh my god it's like it's like that green text like (laughs) writes canon fix fix fix-it fanfic refuses to elaborate (laughs) (laughs)
1: oh my
0: god i love her
1: it turns out that Lana was the real Chad all along. She really was. she's she's so based. <laughs> That's basically what like the whole first hour of the film is doing. I feel. It's just like yeah. it's almost like making fun of the audience for expecting like crazy mind bendy um sci-fi stuff. Yeah. And also people who, also people who read way too much into the themes of the Matrix.
0: AKA us. <laughs> this entire yeah, hour and a exactly. half, <laughs> we're getting cloned on by Lana Wachowski, and we deserve it. We're hacks and frauds. <laughs>
1: I want to see if we can get to the point where the podcast is longer than the movie itself. That would be really I funny. I think
0: we have. I think we already have, like with the two, the two, uh, our previous recording and this recording.
1: Basically, the analyst talks about how he has, how he has this new and fully optimized matrix now because. He's realized the secret is to keep Neo and Trinity apart. He essentially gives Neo an ultimatum that he can come back to his pod, return to the Matrix, forget about everything that happened, or he'll kill Trinity, essentially. So... Yeah, so Neo goes back to Io where along with the help of Sati Um from who's a returning character from the Matrix Revolutions, they're able to convince the human leadership to send in a crew led by Neo and Bugs to rescue Trinity, and uh, so they enter the Matrix where Neo once again confronts the analyst who says that Trinity theoretically is free to go, but she has to consciously Make the choice to stay or leave, and
0: yeah. So um, I think it's also interesting to point out that the confrontation in which she has to choose between going with Neo or how she knows him, Thomas Anderson, um, versus her her husband and kids barging in and you know saying mom like come back with us all this stuff it happens in the cafe where her and um neo slash thomas anderson had their initial conversation that kicked off act two you know the point of no return yeah um yeah and so it sets, sets up that sort of callback and um, in in the transition from... Oh, oh, my gosh. In the transition from Act One to Act Two, it sets up that dilemma, I think, um, for, you know, the, the past the point of no return wasn't really a past the point of no return for Thomas. It was a past the point of no return for Trinity in which she is confronted with the knowledge... Or the possibility, uh, I think is a better word, that she is in the Matrix and she isn't Tiffany. She's Trinity, and um, that that point of no return gets its revol- or resolution when she um, decides, you know what, I am Trinity, and she says that. <laughs> she's like, "Fuck, fuck Tiffany. I'm Trinity," <laughs> or something. something something to that effect. And so I think that was really um, well done how they wrapped that up um, and made that very clear by using the same setting. Like you were saying, if you read it as a, a love story being written in a very typical, you know, three act structure, was it three, three or four act?
1: Three act, yeah.
0: Yeah, three act, three act structure. Um, yeah, I think it's like a very satisfying. Uh, very satisfying moment to see, you know, Trinity uh, make that decision for herself and, you know, trust her own emotions rather than letting those around her dictate her emotions for her and or like dictate her emotional reality for her. But yeah, I think uh, that's that's pretty much all I have to say on that, but I think that was really well done.
1: Yeah, also the cafe is called Simulaté because this movie does not care about subtext <laughs> at all. Subtext is for cowards. Yeah. <laughs> um, But it's actually really interesting the point you said about how the point of um, No Return is about is focused on Tiffany slash Trinity rather than Neo slash Thomas. Um, because I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that makes, um, a lot of the last act of the movie make more sense, honestly, and kind of the movie as a whole too. Um, because another really cool thing I thought the movie did is that the moment when trinity rejects the matrix and says um and says my name is trinity and fuck you basically um it that occurs like almost to the minute at the same point as in the original matrix movie where um where Agent Smith is fighting Neo and has him cornered, and then basically, and then Neo says, my name is Neo, and then gains his full powers and then, like, smashes Smith's head in, basically. Um, So, yeah, that's a really cool parallel, and... Also, um, basically establishes that Trinity's the real hero of the series.
0: Yeah, and, if, and yeah, I think I think I think so. And like, especially, um, you know, at the end, it, it ends up being Trinity who's able to fly, kind of signifying that she is the neo figure of this of this movie. <laughs> and I think that kind of went over a lot of people's heads not not to be like pretentious or whatever but like a lot of movies that i'm watching are like oh this is like stupid like why is she flying like all this stuff and it's just like it's so obvious if you just realize that the woman can be the main character
1: <laughs> <laughs> Women i don't can know be main characters too. what a concept
0: what a concept right <laughs>
1: I mean, like, literally, um, literally everything Neo does in this film, like, past, like, after exiting the Matrix is, like, solely to get back with Trinity, like,
0: oh.
1: um, yeah, like, the, like, every time he, like, in every single in all in every single fight scene in the Matrix Resurrections, like Neo gets his ass like completely demolished until <laughs> he remembers that he needs to get past this person to get back with Trinity, and then he suddenly gains his cyberpunk Superman powers back. Yeah. and yeah and um i mean like it's basically it's basically saying the message that everything that neo does is only because of his love for trinity which yeah this is a pretty powerful message um yeah like you said earlier um sometimes what we need is an authentic love story.
0: Yeah, and I'm really happy that um that we got that in this movie. You know, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I feel like a lot of um a lot of the movies that are coming out recently, not to like name names, Marvel, um is a lot of very like action CGI heavy sort of and like it just feels like the market is flooded with these action movies and I think Lana Wachowski realized we don't need another one of those like romance and love not even romance love shouldn't be a B plot for an action movie action should be the B plot of a, of a love story <laughs> Yeah, but yeah I think it was a really good movie <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah, like, the, a lot of the pacing issues or criticisms of the movie, like, make a lot more sense if you view, like, the sci-fi action stuff as the B-plot for the love story. Like, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, so, once, once Trinity, um, back to, back to the, the rest of the plot, how, uh, the third act kind of wraps it up. Um, once she once she realizes that she is Trinity, they kick ass. <laughs> there's, this <laughs> there's this big chase through the streets uh, where they have to ward off all these um, or fight off, off all of these agents, as well as, um, I don't know if they're like NPCs or if they're just people who have been so taken over by the Matrix that they're willing to use themselves as human weapons, and they just drop themselves from the skyscrapers.
1: Um, um, it's, like, it's like the, in the original Matrix films where, like, the agents are able to take over human bodies um, just, like, on a larger scale. Oh,
0: okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's what the swarm mode is then. All right.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, so um they do end up How do they escape?
1: Oh. Um they're yeah, so they they're chased through the streets. They end up they're chased through the street. They end up escaping into a building, but they're chased up onto the roof and cornered on top of the roof with agents and helicopters closing in and it's at that moment that they it's at that moment that they kiss and reaffirm their love for each other as scenes of the two from the previous matrix movies are overlaid um onto the scene of them kissing, and then, at the very climax of Act 3, they take a literal leap of faith and Hell jump yeah. off the roof of the building. As Bug said at the beginning of the film, they leap off, but they don't fall. They're able to fly. The act that had eluded Neo for the entirety of the movie before the very power that in the first film symbolized his complete mastery over the matrix finally able to accomplish that because he'd found his soulmate in Trinity and She's found him, and they've, yeah, they've basically rediscovered their love for each other, and in doing so, they're able to, and in doing so, they're able to break the matrix and fly. Um. Yeah, when the Wachowskis want to make a point, they really make sure that they make it. <laughs>
0: As, as you said earlier, subtext is for cowards. <laughs> but yeah, that was, I really enjoyed how that, I don't know, it just like filled my, it just filled my heart with like happiness to see things work out for them, you know? Yeah, there is that little epilogue where they kind of like beat the shit out of the analyst. And it sort, oh, yeah. of explains, it sort of explains his downfall was his pride, or his pride was his downfall.
1: Oh yeah, a oh yeah. Also, a funny callback in that scene is when they're beating up the analyst. At one point, Trinity kicks him in the jaw. And when she was talking with Neo earlier in the film, um, she mentions. She mentions um, asking her husband about whether or not he thinks that she's like the Trinity character in the Matrix video game and he says no and laughs at her and she said, and she says, I laugh too, but secretly I wanted to kick his jaw off. So nice little callback there.
0: Wow, very observant. Wow, nice. (laughs) I think that pretty much wraps up um plot-wise. Um the Matrix Resurrections. Any any more concluding thoughts perhaps? I feel like we did cover a lot of ground this time and we were able to get through the whole the whole plot. But um what was like your biggest takeaway from this movie like personally?
1: Um. Yeah. So the thing that stuck with me the most was the ending scene where the analyst says, where the analyst, um, sarcastically tells them, "Hey." I'm still going to be around. The Matrix is still going to be around. Like who like go paint the sky with rainbows for all you care. You can't do anything anyways. And then Neo and Trinity say, "Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's go and paint the sky with rainbows." And um yeah, that's I think that was the thing that s- stuck out to me the most um because it goes back to the whole post-post modern take that i was alluding to earlier where it's basically recognizing that it's basically the film recognizing that you can't escape the matrix um as you as you know it like not not the matrix as in the virtual reality that drains people's body heat to power computers, but um, the matrix as in any sort of system of social control, um, etc. Things like that. Um, It's an acknowledgement that it's a acknowledgment that we live in a post-material world where objective reality doesn't matter anymore, where there isn't a shared understanding of truth, where reality as we know it is just a collective... It's essentially just like a collective... Simulation that people have come together to agree upon in a world where there is no meaning because of that, that means that we can create our own meaning essentially. Like if everything only, if everything only comes down to fiction and fiction and feelings are easier to change than facts then that means that then that means that we are able to change the fiction into a narrative that we want to that um we can come that we can come together and through our collective imaginations through the bond we form with each other where we can create a new fiction into something better so yeah basically the basically the whole reality-based community speech but for mutual aid instead of imperialism
0: yeah like the very thing that can be used to oppress us is the thing that will set us free, you know? Yeah. The truth will set us free, but first it's going to piss you off. Whatever that was, uh, I forgot who said that.
1: Well, it's not, it's not really that, I don't think. <laughs> it's more saying that truth doesn't exist and yeah. there is no reality, but... In a world where there is no truth, that makes it easier to create our own truths. And once we become aware of that fact, we can we can create truths that are positive, that are beautiful, rather than oppressive. Um, basically yeah basically we're in the matrix but being aware of being in the matrix means that we can paint the sky with rainbows and that is pretty rad in and of itself
0: yeah so would that this is not really relevant to the podcast but like is that consistent with like absurdism
1: I think it is, yeah, kind of. Okay. I mean, yeah, that kind of is the. That kind of is, like, what absurdism is trying to get to, I feel. Yeah. But, um, yeah, also, it's just, like, a very <clears throat> powerful story about, um, about why love matters I guess um, which we've talked about a ton yeah
0: <laughs> yeah I really liked that aspect of it too because like personally you know there's always that question of like is love even real or is it just you know a chemical reaction in your brain but you know if you decide it's real it is real
1: <laughs> yeah I think I think that's part of the I think that's part of what the larger series is trying to say too that um that yeah that there are dimensions to love besides just being a bio biochemical Reaction in your brain designed solely for the purpose of propagating your genetics. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, there's, like, it's talks about how it's you don't, like, yeah, you can't know for certain if it's real or not, but it doesn't matter <laughs> because it's still a very it's still a very powerful force regardless um like that like it's powerful because it's illogical i guess is what um i'm trying to say <laughs> like yeah <laughs> like for instance the like, for instance, Trinity choosing to go with Neo instead of her Matrix family, like, rationally, it does not make any sort of sense, um, but because she's doing it out of love, that's what breaks her out of the Matrix, and to make a even further reach um i say that that's really the that's really like the sort of emotion or feeling that topples regimes and empires because um like people like people will say talk a lot about doing things out of the greater good or because of their ideals or whatever, but for the vast, vast majority of people, um, when they make radical decisions like rebelling against their society or government, most of the time it's not because of some grander ideal or the greater good or whatever. They're doing it because they care. They're doing it because of the people that they care and love about, and they want to make their lives better, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, there's a quote from... Um, a Gil Heron poem where he says, "What, um, basically, what is your revolution mean to me? All I want is a home and a wife and children and food to feed them every night. So, yeah, like it's the. So yeah, like that." feeling of kinship and intimacy it's not just um it's not just mushy it's not just mushy sentimental stuff it's a very powerful force that can cause fundamental change i don't know what do you think about it though do you think that The power of love is all you need?
0: I think so, and I think it's something that's incredibly abundant but has been sort of, you know, like commodified and rarefied or whatever, so that those who are able to convince you that they have it and you don't, you know, they're able to like control you.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, so,
0: I don't know, this is going to sound so cliche, but, like, and, like, I'm still in the process of this as well, but, like, if you're able to, you know, love yourself in as far as you can and, like, love other people and, like, find people who love you, you're that much closer to breaking free of you know, the powers that be that want to control you by telling you you don't have love. Because, you know, you do. It's everywhere.
1: I don't know how much of this is just, like, my personal feelings and experience mm-hmm. creeping in. But, like, like you know, the whole saying is that, like, if you want to find love, you have to, like, learn how to measure first, right? Um, but... I think part of what the film is saying is that, like, it doesn't really matter, um, because... Well,
0: yeah, yeah, like, I don't think you have to love yourself first, but I do think it's, like, a type of love that's worth experiencing, you know? Self-love is worth experiencing, loving other people is worth experiencing, and both both are empowering, like, they're different, but they're both empowering, but, you know, self-love on its own isn't enough, and love from other people isn't enough you have to experience as many different kinds of love as possible that's this is like not related to the movie at all this is just like my my personal thing but and I think I think we would be remiss to mention that it's not just Neo and Trinity's love that breaks the matrix but it's also you know the love that Sati had for her father that you know um motivated her motivated her to help Uh, Neo and Trinity break the Matrix and also the love that Niobe has for her I don't know if it's like a daughter figure thing or like a mentor thing but with uh, Bugs you know she went against logic or in her own you know personal beliefs about what's best for Io and decided to you know put her faith in Bugs and let Bugs do this mission and so that's like an act of love as well you know there's like there's a lot of different types of love in the movie that all contributed to you know, breaking the matrix. Um, Of course, like, Neo and Trinity's love is, like, the center, but I think there's a lot of, like, good examples of how all sorts of different kind of love is necessary to, like, break out of the matrix, you know?
1: Yeah, that... Yeah, I never even thought of that, but that makes complete sense. Like, all the... Like, all the major decisions that were made to ultimately reach the conclusion of the film were motivated by different types of love. Yeah. Yeah. There was another tangent I wanted to go on, but I don't know if you I don't know if you want to hear I'm that sad. or not.
0: We can. I want to hear it.
1: Okay. Um so, um, so like in, so in economics, there's like a joke about the homo economicus or like economics man, which yeah. is like, which is referencing how most classical economics models assume that people make decisions solely based on, um, maximizing their own economic utility basically and the joke is that no one who no one who's not an economist and or a sociopath actually thinks or makes decisions like that what? and um i think that there's a very similar um concept in the study of um, politics and um, sociology where there's almost like the assumption of the idea of the political man you know where mm-hmm. it's the <coughs> where it's the person who makes decisions based on um, broad political ideals like um, like freedom or like um liberty justice etc um when in reality people like when it comes down to it like a lot of what influences the real consequential decisions that people make are based on Love or, like, the feelings and the feelings of kinship and the bonds that they have with the people around them.
0: Yeah. So it's not, you know, like, fear and desire, like the analyst was so insistent
1: upon? (laughs) It's the alternative to that, I feel. Okay, yeah. Because yeah, the it's oh true. sorry, what were you going to say? Not
0: saying, I'm just agreeing with you. Like, yeah, that's really true.
1: <laughs> yeah, because like the fear and desire stuff the analyst is talking about is like, it's like based on, like it relies on people being. Isolated and alienated from each other because, like, that's where the desire comes from. Like, it's the desire to feel kinship, to feel bonds with other humans. Um, so that sort of energy is only possible when people are separated and the sort of bonds of love that we see in io that you mentioned earlier that's like the um that's like the contrast to that i guess Mm -hmm. or it's how Mm -hmm. you it's how you combat it you could say i suppose
0: yeah very very good concluding notes we have (laughs) you can stop recording but i am gonna get back on you i want to know. What is it that you love in this life? <laughs> I, don't I don't forget, Amos. I wanna know.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the Matrix <laughs> Resurrections and also our first um movie review podcast, before we conclude, do you have any um anything you wanna plug Sierra? Side projects, social media, etc. Um
0: yeah, I my uh, art account. Um, besides podcasts, I also make art. Um, I'm a tattoo artist, and I dabble in void, digital void art. So like, just it's like a cross between like shit posting and like digital art um, about I, I think just like space aesthetics and like horror aesthetics mixed together. Um, but yeah that's what i got going on. i don't know what i don't i really need to work on my pitch tbh
1: <laughs> so where can where can people find your void art online
0: um you can go to the facebook page uh oc void posting there's a lot of good content in there a lot of good artists um but yeah it's a fun time if you're into that really niche type of uh art <laughs> but yeah my Instagram handle is at NeonWu, so Neon, like Neo with an N, <laughs> .Wu, W-U. And where can we find you, Amos?
1: Um, I am a hack and a fraud, so I do not have anything to plug. Go and find and support your local mutual aid groups, I guess. That's what I'll end on. Nice. So, yeah. That is a show.
0: That's a wrap. Is it a wrap? It's a wrap. Flaming Hot Takes.
1: Maybe that should be the name of the podcast.
0: Flaming hot takes.
1: Except there's probably already is a podcast that exists that's <laughs> called that.
0: I mean, is it about movies though? Hmm. Let
1: me that's go on to a spot- good point. Flaming hot <laughs> flaming hot film takes.
0: Yeah, no, there's no uh there's a hot takes hot takes podcast but there's not a flaming hot takes we can we can have like the flaming hot cheetos logo some or like the <laughs> sort of like flaming hot cheetos bag color scheme but like with with our podcast name in it i don't know if we're going to get like copyrighted or whatever but <laughs>